My thanks to our readers, especially Shirley, who drew the short straw with all those names. Uh, you did remarkably well on a week where we celebrate 119 years of anniversary of Philippine independence. An inside-out church for a right way round, sorry, an inside-out spirit for a right way round church. It's going to be one of those mornings, isn't it? Fifty days after Easter, the promised Holy Spirit comes. What kind of God comes at Pentecost? Well, we might look at the text and we say an elemental charismatic God, a God of wind and fire and tongues. Remember, what we call Pentecost was already, already an existing Jewish festival for hundreds of years. The Jewish festival remembered the giving of the law to Moses, which was itself in the minds of Jews associated with elemental powers of wind and fire, which were always throughout the Old Testament, remember uh, Elijah, symbols of the presence of God. So when on the day of Pentecost these elemental signs occur, we're being given clues. This is God, the lawgiver, acting again. What kind of God at Pentecost? A God who keeps promises. Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples and he says, wait here in Jerusalem and in due course the Holy Spirit will come and on the day of Pentecost God fulfills that promise of the Son of God. Jews believed that Pentecost was an occasion when the Messiah would come. Or as Joel and the other later prophets had it, God's Spirit's power would come which would sort out their enemies and restore God's people to a place of power and privilege. So when the Holy Spirit falls upon the believers and those in this part of Jerusalem, we're being given a clue. What kind of God at Pentecost? A God of blessing and harvest. Because the Jewish festival was originally a harvest festival. The people brought their first fruits of new wine and crops and thanked God for blessings and fruitfulness. So, although it's later on than the text that was read for us this morning, when 3,000 people are added to the baby church that day, the first fruits of God's bounty, it's a clue. And amid all this covenant-restoring, spirit-coming, God-expecting, first-fruit celebrating, there had grown up around all that a tradition about Jerusalem itself. You see, see this in the Old Testament in various places. Jerusalem is the city on the hill. It's a light to the nations. So some Jews believe that one day the nations of all the world from north and south and east and west would come to Jerusalem in chains to pay homage to the one true God. And some Jews believe that all the nations of the world would see the light and realize that the faith of the Jews was the one true faith. And they would come to the holy city, Jerusalem, where the temple of the one true God is found. And they'd cast off their substandard beliefs and come rejoicing to Zion, city of our God. 
So as Jews are traveling from all directions to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, which like some Muslim uh, celebrations was expected of every devout Jew at least once in your lifetime, they would ask one another on the road as they got nearer to the holy city, is this the year? Is this the year when Messiah comes? Is this the year when God will pour out his power? Is this the year when God will restore Jerusalem to its rightful place at the center of all things? And as they gather there with that sense of anxiety and exhilaration, as they gather in large crowds with people from all over the world and that jangling torrent of cultures and languages. There is a sound like wind and tongues of fire and the promised Holy Spirit comes and the disciples rush out onto the streets and they remember the words of Jesus as he went from them into heaven. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Because at Pentecost, the movement, the assumed direction of God's leading is reversed. Whereas the Jewish traditions had people coming to Jerusalem from every direction because this was the center place where it was all happening. What happens on the day that the Holy Spirit of God falls is that they no sooner get used to the fact that something unusual has happened than the Holy Spirit turns around and says, now I want you to go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. My old professor, F.F. Bruce, said of the book of Acts, it is as if a pebble is dropped into the pool of human history and you watch the ripples to Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So what kind of God? A charismatic God, a covenant-renewing, promise-keeping God, a harvest-first-fruits-blessing God, yes. But supremely, an outward-urge missionary seeking to serve, seeking to save God. And I want to focus on that aspect of God's nature today. Because the Acts is often thought of as a history book. And it is after a fashion. But supremely, it charts the activity of a missionary God and God's missionary people through the works of the Holy Spirit and the expansion of the Christian mission. In fact, the whole of Scripture is an account of a missionary God in action. Mission, coming from an ancient word, missio, meaning sentness or to be sent. It's a central theme of the Old Testament, a God who sends. A God who sends messengers and prophets, a God who sends law and then writes it on people's hearts to make his will and desires known. And then, in the fullness of time, the Father sends the Son to live, to do all the wonderful things that we see in Christ's ministry, and finally to die. God self-sent for the salvation of all things. And now, at the first Christian Pentecost, 
When everyone is expecting a gathering of some sorts, go to Jerusalem, go to Jerusalem. This missionary evangelist God comes as Holy Spirit and says, don't stay here, go. You see, God, Father, Son, and Spirit is revealed on the day of Pentecost characteristically to be ascending, seeking God. Now, if that's what God is like, what do you think the people who own and follow that God through Jesus Christ should be like? Are we created as Christian disciples to be a sedentary people or a sent people? Are we created to be a people living behind stained glass or an outward people throughout the world? The church is not so much a sanctuary in the sense that we come here to retreat from the world, to hide away from reality, although sometimes there is need to come apart, as we know. It's more a launch station, and we're right, therefore, in our church to engage in and support the many, many ministries that we do outside this place. Because we're just as much the disciples of Christ when we are being sent as when we gather to worship and pray. Nor are we sent alone. The day of Pentecost narrative makes it quite clear that the image here in the Acts is not the Holy Spirit as a parent who wraps up the children in warm clothes and then shoes them out of the front door on their own into a cold and barren world, waves them goodbye as they walk down the garden path and say, see you tonight, you can tell me how you got on and then goes inside and makes a cup of tea. Rather, the image of the Holy Spirit is one who gathers the family round, equips them with what they need, prepares them, opens the door, strides out of the door, and says, come with me to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Remember just a fortnight ago what I was saying to you in that sermon on grace and the different understandings of grace, particularly through the, uh, the, the theology, the thinking, the practical Christianity of John Wesley. And I mentioned about John Wesley's doctrine of prevenient grace, pre-before-vene to bring life, grace, life. That which happens before we know about it. John Wesley associated that very often with the movement of the Holy Spirit. And when he read the book of Acts, he said, here is the Spirit going before us at every turn. He wrote late in his life that the Acts of the Apostles is the one book where the church realizes how fast it has to move to continue pace with what God's doing. I remember when I was at Cliff College, I'm not told many stories of Cliff College, but I remember distinctly sending them all out on mission. We sent them for a long weekend, and then if you were a second or third year student, you went three weeks over Easter. Uh, and uh, I often used to pray for the congregations that hosted Cliff College students for three weeks over Easter. It must have been a very long three weeks for them. But we were glad to get rid of them. No, I'm kidding. Um, and we'd gather in the chapel and we'd say, right, now you're going to Sodbury under Sludge or wherever. 
for a mission at Easter. What are you going to do? And they pan out what they were going to do and some people are going to do this and that and the other. I say, why are you doing it? We're going to the people of such and such a town or village uh, to tell them about the love of God in Jesus Christ, to bring Jesus to them. And then they'd come back and they'd uh, immediately jump in the shower and clog up all the laundry rooms and we'd gather them back in the chapel and we'd say, right, you went to Sobri under sludge to take Jesus to the people. What happened? He was already there. Some of them even got quite narked, northern word, that they were, Jesus was already there. They thought they were pioneers, but nevertheless, they were joining in with what God was already doing because the Spirit is a prevenient Spirit, goes before, prepares the way. And notice, please, that it's the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of the outward urge. Now, I make that point because often when we think about holiness, we think of it as being essentially inwards. We think of it about withdrawing from the world and all its grittiness and sinfulness rather than engaging with the world. How many vestry prayers have Methodist preachers sat through where the honest and good steward has said, O oh Lord, bless us as we withdraw from the world from a hallowed hour where we can spend time in the quietness of your presence. And they're half right, but no more than half right about the nature of what you're doing. It's understandable to think of holiness mainly as withdrawal and separation. The world's a messy place. It's a corrupt place. It's a violent place. You don't need me to tell you that this morning in this city. And therefore, holiness guards itself from being tainted with corruption. That's what all these clean and unclean rules in Judaism were about. That's what all that philosophical Greek stuff was about the body the flesh being bad and evil and the spirit being good. It's all about so holiness can keep itself pure. So it keeps apart. So what we've got to notice, because it goes against all that kind of natural instinct, is that on the day of Pentecost, God as Holy Spirit, a person of the Christian Trinity, falls into the messiness and the corruption and the sinfulness of a city like Jerusalem and says, come with me to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Why? Because I'm holy. Holiness impels itself into a world like that rather than simply withdraws from it. When I was in one of our Methodist schools, I used to ask students doing GCSE religious studies, name me some holy people. And one name always came up in the top three. Now, you've got to remember this was in the 1990s. But the name that always came up in the top three was Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Most 15 and 16-year-olds thought that automatically. Yes, you know, Mother Teresa... That well-known recluse who sat in a monastery, never touching anybody, never getting involved with the sins of the world, never meeting any beggars, never having dirt under her fingernails, etc., etc. No. 
Even the shape of the woman was bent to service. Yet holy. Why? Because in some deep way, she reminds us of the servant of the servant of Jesus. And it's the spirit of Jesus that propels us outwards to sinful and needy people. So at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit suggests that holiness is as much about opting in as opting out. It's about being sent by a holy God rather than barricading the church doors. Here and throughout the Acts of the Apostles, the experience of the Holy Spirit leads the believers towards people, not away from them. And I wonder if that's how most of us see today the Holy Spirit at work. Another example and another question. What is the gift of tongues about here in this narrative by Luke? You see, I believe, and I know we believe, in the gifting and infilling of the Holy Spirit. There's no way on earth that Peter and the healing team could sustain the healing ministry which we have felt under God that needs to be a key part of our ministry here without we believed in the supernatural agency, aid, and help of God's Holy Spirit. And at the end of this sermon, I'll be inviting people on this special Spirit Day to seek prayer for more of God's Holy Spirit, who is comforter and strengthener and healer and revealer of Jesus and sender out into the world. But you know, sometimes we act as the church as if the Spirit were our kind of skivvy. We're the people of God. Holy Spirit, we need you to turn up, we need you to bless up, we need you to do this, we need you to do that. Rather than, as the Acts of the Apostles makes plain, the church is the servant of the Spirit, not vice versa. If the Holy Spirit is to be seen in terms of oil, it's not only the oil of anointing that we shared last week. It's also the oil of WD-40. It loosens everything up. It makes things work. That's the Holy Spirit in the Acts of the Apostles. So here on the day of Pentecost, it's clear that Luke considers the most significant thing about this charismatic outpouring of tongues is not the ecstasy and the spirituality of those who received that gift, wonderful though it was. It's not the building up of the church by 3,000 people, though it's clear that that was a wonderful start for the Christian church. Rather, it was that people from all over the world who spoke dozens and dozens of different languages and dialects understood what the uncultured disciples were saying to them. That's the miracle that Luke draws your attention to on Pentecost. How is it that we all hear the praises of God in our own language, they say? 
People from all over the world hear the message and say in effect as they turn to one another, they're speaking my language. Languages are important, aren't they? I uh, remember it's my late father's birthday yesterday. He would have been 95 and we were just reflecting at home. Uh, and uh, that always takes me back to some happy times when as a very young uh, teenager, probably 13, 14, we went on family holidays in my dad's homemade dormobile. I say homemade because you couldn't buy motorhomes at that time and he did one himself. It was his, part of his gift. And we went uh, in 1967-69 across the dust basing from Santander across through um, Barcelona eventually and out to the coast and drove those hundreds of miles across what is non-popular Spain. And I remember distinctly in the heat pulling up at this little cafe at the side of the dusty road and they were doing something in the dormobile so they said to me a timid whatever I was old, go in there and make sh and order two, cafe, uh, two coffees and two Cokes. Well, I thought even I could manage uh, dos café con leche, dos Coca-Cola, por favor. I mean, I thought even I could do that. So I go into the dark and cool and push back that bead screen, you know, and I walk and there behind this little serving hatch is this young woman dressed traditionally in black and I stumble out my order and she waits patiently and scribbles something down on a pad. And then she looked up at me and looked me straight in the eye and said, right, love, I'll bring them over to you. Are you going outside? <laughs> she was living over there, doing a year at the end of a university course in Spanish and came from Wallasey. <laughs> Languages and enculturation. I mean, have you ever thought that God could have done the Pentecost thing another way around? Instead of enabling each person in Jerusalem to hear the gospel in their own language, God could have performed a different miracle. He could have instantly taught everyone present a universal language that everyone would have had to learn one. It's, it would be a kind of ecstatic Esperanto. Esperanto, that universal language spoken by, well, hardly anyone really. And that's the point. God didn't choose the Esperanto route. You see, for the gospel to be truly gospel, you need to hear it in your own language and your own culture. What a change it was in Christian history when we started to translate the Scriptures into other languages rather than expect everybody, let's say, in Ireland to learn Latin. But too often we've seen this need only in terms of people far away. In a global city, what are the people who surround us? A third of our congregation was born somewhere else. Do we learn their language 
so that our gospel is communicated so that every person says they're speaking my language. Or in subliminal ways about what we do and how we do it. Do we really say, now you've got to learn ours. All the different languages reached by this miracle of translation suggests that God's intention for the church is not a one-colored, one-language, little boxes, little boxes, and they all look the same, church. But a multi-colored, multifaceted, multi-language community that speaks and is able to speak about Christ and the infilling grace of the Spirit to every soul on earth. A boy was writing home from a skiing holiday and sent his parents a picture, a beautiful picture of the Alps. And when the parents turned it over, and this is with deference to everybody in Essex because I can't change the story, the message on the back was, Dear Mum and Dad, having a great time. If God can create this, why did he bother with Essex? <laughs> it's one of the things that I love most about our congregation here. It's variety. We virtually have a version of Pentecost every Sunday morning. And on the day of Pentecost, God is making it clear who is included in the message of Christ, in the offer of grace, in the invitation of salvation. And the answer is everyone. Every race, every person, every culture, every tribe. Why should we be surprised at that? Isn't God's way always one of incarnation? Entering the world, learning the language, becoming, taking on flesh and blood, supremely, of course, in Jesus. Pentecost is about the power and the filling of God. But it's not empty power and it's not empty filling and it's not there just for our benefit to be blessed up even though it's great to be blessed up Pentecost is about a holy God who is abroad for the work of God's kingdom yes even on Tower Bridge and even today everywhere in the world inviting people to respond to goodness to respond to grace to respond to God, to be about God's mission, for that's the key calling of the Christian community throughout the world. So, we are called to be a right way round church for an inside out spirit. It's enough. But some people will be here and they will have picked up from the start of our service to the end the motifs of spirit language that we've used. And among a group of people like this, there will be those of us who arrive today and they say, I just need to know better a comforter. I just need to have more boldness. In my life at the moment, what I need is a sense of excitement 
about this Christian life, that it's not just the same old, same old, but the Spirit is saying, go. I need the Spirit who is healer. And I look at my discipleship and I say, I need the one who says that he will reveal to me more of Jesus Christ, because that's what I need. And so, as we sing this final hymn, let's be open for the Spirit to come again. Same Spirit, same church, same wide group of people. And as we pray that, let's be open to God ministering to us as we have need. And then at the end of the service, for people who want further ministry or prayer, there'll be some of our ministry team available. Amen.